Welcome to KPOV's Critical Conversations podcast, dedicated to featuring unique perspectives, challenging mundane thought, and questioning the norm. Listen at kpov.org, on YouTube, or on your favorite podcast app. Kate Zernicki, it's great to speak with you. You have been a reporter for the New York Times since 2000, Pulitzer Prize winner, quite um, quite a career you've you've created for yourself in your writings. And today we're talking about your most recent, your novel, um, the story, The Exceptions, Nancy Hopkins, MIT, and the Fight for Women in Science. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So The Exceptions, and I want to talk about the title of the book here shortly, but yeah. it's about, centers on the life of Nancy Hopkins, and just yep. reading through our talking points, a reluctant feminist who became the leader of the 16, and a hero to two generations of women in science. So it's really interesting, you know, she was hired to prestigious universities at the dawn of affirmative action efforts in the 70s. So just reading yeah. the book and doing the history just for myself, it was like, this was in the 70s when she was hired and thought, you know, discrimination against women was a thing of the past. So it's kind of interesting to think in the 70s, the thought process, and I want to get in the minds of not only Nancy, but the other individuals that you write about during that time. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like a real look in the past, like we get this window into the past, and you did such a beautiful job of doing that. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things you, that I realized going back to write the book, because of course this started with a newspaper article I did in 1999 about Nancy and these women and MIT admitting that it discriminated against them, and you know, in 1999, when someone said to me, oh, there's something going on with MIT and discrimination, I thought, like, well, you know, what can it be? Like, what, what does discrimination really look like now? And I sort of thought, oh, it'll be a lawsuit, whatever. And then it turned out the university was going to admit this. But it was a really different kind of discrimination they were talking about. So uh, my my sort of, whatever, impression, view of discrimination at the time was, you know, that it was about closed doors, right? So it was about not you couldn't get a job like my mother who wanted to go to law school when she graduated from college in 1954 was told don't go to law school because nobody will hire a woman and so she didn't and she went but she went to law school in the 70s so I thought okay doors had opened right and what these women said was that it's actually not just enough to open the doors that you have to think about how you treat people and how you view them as their careers progress so like maybe you maybe you treat them really well and you welcome them at the beginning of their careers but what does it look like 5 10 20 years down the line and the women found that they were they're being sort of pushed aside while the men are being groomed for leadership roles and given bigger salaries and bigger grants and more space. And, um, yeah, so it was something, but I do think you're right. Like, for those of us who came later, it's, um, it's eye-opening to, you know, I went back and I looked at Nancy's 1964 yearbook from Radcliffe, which is the girls' version of Harvard, and it was amazing how that generation of women thought, Oh, we got, you know, like, that was a, you know, it was a year after Betty Friedan had written Feminine Mystique, but they were like, we don't need Betty Friedan. That was, she was speaking to our mother's generation. We have this all figured out. We're going to be able to balance a career, family. And I think every generation discovers this problem for themselves, and every generation thinks that it solved the problem. And in fact, like, we're still working on it all these years later. Well, and I think, too, even just back then, and for me, thinking even my thoughts today, when you enter into an environment, whether it's work, um, just social groups, or or whatever you want to call it, whenever you gather people, that Mm -hmm. why would you be, why would there be discrimination? Why would there be bias? Why, where does that come from? How did that get started? And especially in the field that she was in, and she even mentioned, you know, the meritocracy of where she was at, and literally Mm -hmm. in science, you're hiring me because of my knowledge and my ability and my skill, like it was an even playing field 
And then when you start realizing, right. wait a minute, I'm starting to pick up on some things that don't feel like this is an even playing field. And you start yeah, questioning yourself. Exactly. Like she, so Nancy went into, she got hired, as you say, in 1973 at MIT. You know, she'd had an offer from Harvard Medical School and um, for prestigious places, and they were hiring her based on her experience. She had done this really, she's a molecular biologist. She'd done this really important um, experiment with this guy, Mark Potashny, about to understand how genes are expressed. It was a very important early experiment. Um, so she's being hired because of her experience, because she's got this concrete knowledge, this concrete experience, and she thinks, okay, I know I'm an affirmative action hire, but I'm not going to worry about it because all that matters are my results, and I know that I can do these experiments. I know I can get results. I can do important work. I have what it takes, and this is a meritocracy. And that is, you know, you mentioned the title at the outset. Like, that is one of the reasons that I call this book The Exceptions is that, you know, first of all, in the most obvious way, these women... Nancy ultimately joins with 15 other women at MIT to, to document how they're being discriminated against. Um, and it's ways, you know, salary and space, but it's also subtle ways that being kept out of meetings and, and grant proposals and all this, um, leadership roles. But all of the women think, as Nancy did, that this was a meritocracy, that they didn't need to worry about this. Um, it, and they say, finally, in 1999, when this comes out, like, discrimination didn't look like what we thought it would look like. So these women were exceptional in the most obvious way in that they were very talented, they were very accomplished, and they got jobs in science at a time when not a lot of women were. But the double meaning of the exceptions is that the way they, you know, for 20 years, Nancy ignored this stuff and, or, or put it to the side, and she did so, and they did so by saying, well, this isn't, you know, either, as you say, it's me, it's my fault, or um, this is just a personality conflict, or this is just a, you know, this is just one difficult guy in the lab. It, this is the exception. They did not see that this was a pattern and that the system was really stacked against women. Well, and let's go back to, to 1999. That's when you wrote the story for the Boston yeah. Globe. How did you come to learn of this in 1999? Well, I, I tell people, you know, my dad was a physicist, and I had... Um, he had talked to me about how few women there were in physics, and that troubled him. And so when I took over the higher education beat at the Globe in September of 1998, he said, you might want to look into the work this woman, Millie Dresselhaus, is doing. She was a physicist at MIT. Uh, look at the work she's doing to get more women into physics. And I was like, it just seemed kind of like a not very exciting story. And so I was like, yeah, I'm going to ignore that. <laughs> but six months later, someone in the newsroom said to me, um, they had gotten a tip, and, you know, can you return the call from this woman named Nancy Hopkins? Apparently, there's something going on with discrimination at MIT, and I was like, okay, fine. So I called, and I guess I thought maybe it would be a lawsuit, and probably a he said, she said, because at the time, I didn't think it would be anything obvious, because if it were anything obvious, I don't know, we would have known about it, or if someone would have fixed it. <laughs> um, surely, right? Um, so I called Nancy, and she said that, in fact, MIT was going to admit discrimination against women on its faculty. And that was a really surprising story. Nobody was expecting a very, nobody was expecting any university, much less a very prestigious institute to do this. Um, there hadn't been a lawsuit. It had, in fact, MIT had been convinced by this group of women who had gathered data to show their case. Um, and that struck me as just a very MIT story. I didn't know at the time that MIT's motto is men's at manas, or mind and hand. Um, but this is essentially what these women had done, right? They had, they had, you know, sort of gotten down to work and used it, relied on their science and relied on data 
kind of hacked the system in a way to show that they were being discriminated against. And MIT right, recognized that because they had proved their case. They, they had done the experiment and shown it, shown the results. So, um, so that was really interesting to me. And then I met with Nancy and I said, you know, how did you know about this? And how did this all get started? And she told me that she had been studying, she'd been moving into a new area to study zebrafish and she needed more space for her zebrafish tanks. And she tried to get more space, and they said, you know, the man in charge of the building said no. And she said, but I knew I had less space than the men. And I said, well, how did you know? And she said, I measured. And I said, you measured? And she said, yeah, with a tape measure. And so um, it turned out that when she, you know, she, she said you could eyeball the space and know that I had less than all the men. But she, so she waits until late at night, and she, but she wanted to prove her case again. So she waits until late at night. And she goes into the building and she measures every lab space and every office space. And she realizes that she has, she's a fully tenured professor in her late 40s at the time. And she has less lab space than even men without tenure. Um, and that's when she, you know, it's been, as I said, it's been 15 years, 20 years of ignoring what has been happening to her. And this sort of starts to make her into an activist and, and really starts to make her into a feminist. Yes. And she begins to fight back. Well, it was interesting reading that, you know, kind of a reluctant feminist. And mm. the way they went about it, Nancy at the lead and the 16 women and how they did that. It, and it reads in the book, too, about being very pragmatic, not necessarily no. wanting to be activists. The way they went about their case, their data was really fascinating. Yeah. And I think, you know, it was, it was again, what, the first thing they do, first thing Nancy does is she ultimately she has this course taken away from her because these two guys are going to teach it together and she finds out that they're going to start a company and, and commercialize the course and make a lot of money on this course that she herself has developed with one of the guys. And she thinks this is wrong. And that's when she really does become an activist. But what she, but at that point, she shows, she writes a letter to the president of the university and she shows it to another woman who she doesn't know very well. And um, the woman actually too much to Nancy's surprise says, I want to sign this letter. And I think we should do something about this because I've long thought this was a problem. And instead of sending the letter to the president of the university, they actually go back to talk to another woman who they know. And these three women decide they're going to consult all the women at MIT and see what they think. But of course, they think, well, we should really just start with the School of Science because surely there are so many women at MIT. And then they look at the number of school, women at the School of Science and they discover there are 15 women and tenured women in the School of Science and 197 men. So like a huge disparity. And they, you know, they go around and they, they, canvas all these women, and very quickly all the women sign on, except for one. They pull in two women from the School of Engineering who have these cross appointments. Um, but so they, yeah, they really do, they sit down and they, they ask for a committee to look, like, they don't want to just, they don't want to just complain, right? They really do believe in meritocracy. They are grateful for these jobs. Um, but they also want to get to the bottom of the problem. So they, all they ask for is a committee to look at the problem. And what the dean, they go to the dean of science and ask him to have this committee. And what he says very smartly, as it turns out, is if you want this committee to be to have power and to have influence, you need to put some powerful men on the committee, and you need to convince the men of your case. And so they actually include the men in gathering the data, and the men are so struck by what's happening that they are the ones who say we really need to put out a report and and have other people know this and and fix these problems. So yes, they did go about it methodically, and it was data, but it was also the power of their stories, you know, their experience, and what it felt like to be in a department as the only woman and to be in a meeting and just feel like everybody else had the playbook and you don't because you're just not one of them. And to be, to be in an environment where there is still this, you know, unexpressed but 
but very real sense that women don't really belong here. They're tolerated, but they're not welcome. Was there pushback or any backlash while they were going oh, through yeah. this process? <laughs> oh, Yes, and that was one of the things, you know, it was so different. So I do this newspaper story in 1999, and then I come back to do the book in 2018, starting in 2018, and, um, and that was one of the things I didn't understand. I thought, oh, MIT got this data and recognized it and did the right thing. But there was a tremendous amount of pushback from men, which I think is, um, I think is understandable, and I think we still see today, you know, when, when things like this happen, because the men thought, well, we're not evil. You know, we didn't set out to discriminate. Um, and, and I think in most cases they had not, and they didn't really realize. And what, what I realized writing this book, and even what Nancy realized reading the book, you know, she, reading about her own life, was that the culture really was backed in this direction. And it's just like... You know, again, these men didn't set out to be evil, but it's just that the whole tide of the culture is pushing back against the notion of women entering fields where they had not been welcome for so long, and particularly in science, where there there was this sense, you know, we've, we've had this sense as a country for a long time that, you know, women aren't quite smart enough. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but then you go, you go back and you look at the not-so-distant history and the things that people have been saying about women and their abilities and the kinds of jobs that we are going to trust them with or not trust them with. And it's kind of understandable that, that, that all of this would still be happening, even in, even in the 1990s. So, yes, there was pushback from the men. Um, but, again, one of the really smart things the women did was one of the women, the younger women, said, in, in particular, she wanted to get the guy who was most skeptical. She said, we have to get him on board because I know this guy, he's very skeptical, but I also know that he's capable of having his mind changed. And if we show, if we make our case with him, he will flip and he will become such an advocate on our side that he can bring the other men along. And for the most part, that is what happened. I won't say that it was 100% buy-in, um, but obviously it was enough buy-in that the dean of science, the president of the university, they were convinced by what, by what, this, by what this group of women did. Well, it is interesting, too, because I think when you say the men were saying, well, we're not, we're not bad, we're not intentionally yeah. doing this, it seems like it was more, well, this is just how we do it. This is just what we've always done. And nobody yeah. ever stopped to think, well, is this what we should be doing? <laughs> or does this make sense? Right. I mean, we even say that today. It's like, well, yeah, that's the way we've always done it, but is it working? Does it make sense? Can we, mm -hmm. you know, look at it in a different light today? And, um, yeah, there is resistance to that, and which is yeah. interesting. You know, what um, is it the dean of science says to them, when, to the women when they first go to him? And he's, you know, he's really quickly convinced. He describes it like, this, like a scientific epiphany, like he's hit by lightning. When he sees six of these women in, in his conference room and they're telling him the same story and the same experience, you know, one after one. And he says, like, had any, had any one of them come to me and describe their problem, I would have been like, oh, it's, it's the exception, right? But he realizes that, in fact, it's the pattern. Um, and he says to them, okay, you can have this committee to look into the discrepancies between men and women, but but he's very suspicious, and he's suspicious, he's, he's dubious that this will, this will have an effect, because he says, this is just the competitive culture of MIT. And I think one thing that they think about is, like, does the culture need to be this way? Like, does the science really... Like, yes, there's, there's a certain amount of competition built into anything. But I think this is something where we've, we actually have come a long way, where we say, like, do we really need to have this super aggressive, almost, you know, frankly, in some cases, bullying culture to, to be successful? And I think we've, we've decided that the answer is no. So that's one way I think we've seen progress. 
What and, and MIT they came out and acknowledged it, took ownership mm-hmm. of it. What what was Nancy? What were they wanting? What was you know? Here's what not what our demands are, but here's the changes yeah. that we need to see. And did they get them? Yeah. So you know, what they really wanted on a, on the most basic level was they wanted to be able to do their science, and they wanted to be seen not as women scientists, not as female scientists, but as scientists. And they only complained, as I said, they felt very lucky to have these jobs, and they didn't want to complain, they didn't want to be, quote-unquote, difficult women. Um, but, but so they only complained when, when it got in the way of doing their science. So what they wanted was equal resources. They wanted to know where the resources were. A lot of this was, trans, was a lack of transparency. So they didn't necessarily know what grants were available to them. They wanted to be included on group grants. They wanted, for instance, you know, and, and in each workplace, each field is different, but one of the ways, for instance, that women in several departments were disadvantaged was they have to raise grant money, like federal grants, but but they had to, but the women were paying, you know, in some cases like forty percent of their grants toward their own salaries, whereas the university was paying one hundred percent of the salaries for some of the men. Um, at the time, it was secretarial support. Um, some of the women, the younger women, really pushed this. They didn't have daycare at MIT at the time. Uh, nobody, no woman had taken maternity leave because they felt it would be a stigma on them. So, so it, it, you know, it really it depends on different fields. What the women wanted was really was was space and and money to do their resources. Nancy, you know, wanted a thirty thousand dollar microscope, which thirty thousand dollars in the scope of MIT's budget was not a lot. Um, so that was it. But but I think they also wanted to be included in more powerful positions in decision making. So there had never been a woman as head of any department or any center. So women were included. Um, more women were included in administration. Fast forward now, women are essentially running MIT. So there's a female head of the board. There's a female president, female chancellor, female provost, female <laughs> dean of science. You know, you go the school of engineering, eight departments, five are led by women. So it's really it, it is a huge change. But that was that was a big change. They just their sort of, their voices weren't really heard. Um, but it's also, you know, I think there's just been a much greater awareness. And a lot of science is built on credit, you know, it's built on what you're known for, what papers, you're, what discoveries and papers you're credited with. So it's kind of the, um, I think a lot of women in different fields, non-scientific fields, know that feeling of being in a meeting and speaking up about something and proposing an idea and it's like, oh, yeah, nice, fine. And then two, two people down the table, a guy mentions a very similar idea or maybe the exact same idea and everyone goes, oh, that's a great idea. So it was like, now I think there's much more awareness of like, oh, no, that was actually, John mentioned the idea, but that was actually Jane who mentioned it first. Good job, Jane. Um, it sounds silly, but, but that, it's those little molehills that were adding up to mountains for these women and, and ultimately making them, for, you know, they had less reputation, less prestige than the men did because they were being denied credit for a lot of this stuff. What did the book mean to Nancy, seeing it in print? Did she assist you in writing the book? Um, so Nancy initially, it, it was my book, and I wrote the book. This is not an as-told-to book. Um, Nancy initially was going to give me access to her papers, but she was going to moderate the process, right? So she was going to sit in, in her office with me and tell me what I could and couldn't take and what I could and couldn't see. So as we built up trust, <laughs> She ultimately gave me everything. Then there was, she had taken a, Nancy was the one who stood up to Larry Summers, the president of Harvard years ago, when he said women can't do math and science. Um, She became somewhat famous, infamous after that. And so someone proposed, someone went to her and proposed writing a memoir. So she had taken a stab at writing a few chapters of a memoir. She never did it, but she was 
so she showed me her office papers, and then she showed me part of the memoir, but there was stuff that I couldn't see. And then but finally, by the time we did build up this relationship, that she shared that with me as well. But a lot of the book was based on interviews with her. With she, It was very important to her that I get um, response and reaction from the men in the book. So I did as much, you know, where they were still alive, where they would speak to me, I did. Um, so the book was definitely, you know, it's, it's definitely reported from many different perspectives. And there are many women, this is really a story of collective action. And so there are many women who came together to make this all happen. So I talked to all of them and I tell their stories as well. Nancy ultimately paid me this incredible compliment, which was the only thing that Nancy read the book for was the science because I wanted to make sure that I had the science correct. I'm not a scientist. Um, so she, when she read the final version of the book, she said, and this compliment was amazing to me. She said, you know, I haven't understood my life until I read your book. And what she meant by that was that she herself couldn't see it in the context of history. Like she couldn't see how the culture was pushing against women in science for so long. And that really helped her kind of appreciate and put her own life in context. So that to me was a great compliment. And in fact, a mentor, a mentee of hers, who's my age also said the same thing. So again, the highest compliment for me. Well, I know when the article first came out in 1999, and then I'll hear about 24 years later is the book. What? Yeah. Why the gap? So I, um, I always say, like, as a reporter, I don't have favorite stories, but this was definitely one that I looked back on with real interest. And because I was, I was just starting my career when I first did this story, and I felt like these women had taught me something about the progression of women's careers and the way they, you know, again, like what discrimination looked like now. And I was sort of on the lookout for this. And so I always thought about it, but then in twenty in January of 2018, I was thinking about it in particular because, um, first of all, Nancy had, was, you know, she was going to move her, her papers to the archives at MIT, so I knew they were available. Um, but the Me Too movement was surging, and I was watching it and thinking, okay, this is a really important development, but it struck me that that was sort of a narrow slice of the problem, you know, the really egregious sexual assault, and that for many women, for a far greater segment of women, the real problem was this much more subtle discrimination um, that happens in the workplace and happens over the arc of your career. Um, and it, it wasn't necessarily, the, the again, the egregious sexual assault. It really was what the women at MIT described as marginalization or this unconscious bias. And But in 1999, when these women talked about unconscious bias, um, the unintended slights against them, uh, nobody was talking about it. We didn't know what it was. By now, by 2018, we were talking about it so much that I think people had become numb to it. And they were like, oh, you know, I'm, I, I had that, but I'm cured of it, or it doesn't really exist, or I had the workplace training on that. At the most extreme level, we say that's just wokeness or political correctness. Um, and so I wanted to, I, I know that it still does exist, and I wanted to, I thought that by telling this very intimate story of Nancy and how she comes together with these other women and they all realize they're experiencing the same thing and have been for so long. By telling this intimate story and how unconscious discrimination happens day by day, year by year, that I could show people how it works and that I could sort of, you know, break through that numbness a little bit. So that was the goal and that was why I thought it could have meaning in 2018. Again, that was Kate Zernicke talking about her book, The Exceptions, the true story of Nancy Hopkins, MIT, in the fight for women in science. Quite an interesting story. If you go back to the 1970s, what women, what was happening for women at that time, and uh, maybe the similarities to maybe what's happening now, or how far we have come um, 
with, uh, especially with meritocracy. I think that's so important. But um, her book is exceptional, and it's called The Exceptions. Um, And you can find it anywhere books are sold. Thank you for listening to KPOV's Critical Conversations podcast. To hear weekly interviews on important topics, please visit kpov.org slash critical conversations and follow KPOV High Desert Community Radio on Facebook, YouTube, and your favorite podcast app.